is the fall line. They kind of speculated um, that she kind of was overreacting in the incident, and they tried to downplay uh, how she got hit by the car and what originally started it. They tried to make it seem as if we were in the middle of the uh, road being a disturbance and stuff like that. Those are details that weren't even true. And I guess from their standpoint, just to try to be uh, sympathetic to what they were going through, it was so completely random. Like, even to this day, it just made no sense because it wasn't there. In usual cases, we the people know each other. We don't. We didn't know that guy. He didn't. She didn't know that guy. And the police detective later just speculated that he believes she that dude was just looking for somebody to uh, kill. Like if it hadn't been us, it was going to be somebody that day. And he also said that he might have been following y'all for way longer than you uh, believe. There's no telling. He could have been stalking her for quite some time, and we just had no idea. A long time ago, Atlanta was where everything ended. Terminus City, the end of the railroad line, belted by circling tracks where freight came and went. Even now, Atlanta remains the ultimate destination for many, with the metro population growing each year, and more middle- and low-income families priced out of town and into the suburbs. According to an Atlanta City website, there are hundreds of neighborhoods within the city limits. Million-dollar houses pressed in between steadily decreasing patches of low-income housing. There's Grant Park, Ormwood, the old Fourth Ward, where Atlanta Beltline Development connects, quote, 45 in-town neighborhoods via green space and walking paths. Mixed-use developments have sprung up alongside a splash pad and a skate park. The old Ford factory has been repurposed into lofts. Ponce de Leon, once the unofficial segregating line between the north side of town and the south, is the area's main street. It runs right into downtown Atlanta, where clogged traffic circles construction sites and inches toward the capital. Every city has its own language often indecipherable to outsiders. And Atlanta is no exception. The southeastern grocery store chain, Kroger, has very firm footing here. So much so that, to tell neighborhood stores apart, Atlanta has given them nicknames. Many Krogers are described based on the culture of the neighborhoods that surround them. And that's to neutral or problematic effect, depending. Kosher Kroger, in the neighborhood of North Druid Hills, is in walking distance of temple services. It has huge displays each Jewish holiday and houses a Chinese restaurant closed on Shabbat. Hipster Kroger on Caroline Street, between Little Five Points and East Atlanta. Shiny new Crowbar, close by, has plenty of organic foods and beer on tap. Disco Kroger, next to what was once an all-night dance club in Buckhead. Fiesta Kroger, down Buford Highway, where many immigrant populations live and work. Quote, Ghetto Kroger, in southeast Atlanta, far enough down Moreland Avenue not to be fashionable, but only blocks from Grant Park, where refurbished homes in historically lower-income neighborhoods now sell for half a million dollars or more. And then there's Murder Kroger, a store the Atlanta Journal-Constitution writes was once called Scary Kroger. 
The supermarket was torn down in 2016 and replaced with an upgrade, surrounded by more of the mixed-use space that's now so common on Ponce de Leon. Before the store was demolished, a tongue-in-cheek vigil was held. People wore murder Kroger t-shirts, drank beer, lit candles, even brought canned goods for the Atlanta Food Bank. They took selfies in the nearly empty store. The crowd there skewed young, too young to remember the first homicide in 1991 that earned the shopping center its dangerous reputation. Three more deaths would follow in or around the store. In 2002, a man's body was found inside a car in the store's parking lot. In 2015, a college student was shot in the Ford factory loft's breezeway, which directly flanked the Kroger. And, as the AJC reports, another death occurred in 2015 when a construction worker tried to stop an assailant from stealing his truck. Based on our research, it seems the man found in the car in 2002 was never identified in the press. We don't even know his cause of death or whether the case is open or closed. The 2015 cases were resolved when suspects were arrested, tried, and eventually convicted. But that first murder of Cynthia Prielo, her case remains unsolved. As is the way with legend, the real story of a 25-year-old from up north who the AJC reported had come to Atlanta for the good weather has mostly been forgotten. The longest article that touches on Cynthia's case is a 90s-era two-pager focused on women's safety. Cynthia's story is included there as a cautionary tale. We are told that she carried mace. After several uneventful years in Atlanta, she used it. In response, she was shot three times. Her friends looked on, terrified, as she collapsed in that Kroger's parking lot. Media coverage and police records report the same basic chain of events. Cynthia Priolo was walking through the Kroger parking lot with two friends. An aggressive driver tried to force them out of the way. Cynthia's friends moved, but she didn't, and she exchanged words with the man. He then bumped the back of her legs with his car. Cynthia approached the driver's side window. They argued. She sprayed him with mace and he drove off, only to circle back around and open fire. Cynthia died before she reached the trauma unit at Brady Memorial Hospital. That's not exactly how things happen, though. At least, not according to Damon Parker. And he should know. His memories aren't exact, now 28 years on, but he was there when it happened. He and his cousin, Stephanie Buffington, are the two friends never named in media reports. They wanted it that way. They didn't know if Cynthia's killer would come for them. After all, at the top of the episode, Damon told us what the investigator said in 1991. Maybe that man had been looking for someone to kill. Damon and his cousin didn't do media interviews, and they tried to keep a low profile. In the 1990s, news articles regularly included people's addresses, and Damon and Stephanie didn't want to risk that. They didn't want to attract the shooter's attention. A man who could drive calmly away from a murder scene? He'd have no trouble doing it again. It's only been in the last six years that Damon has spoken publicly about Cynthia's death. 
it wasn't easy to dredge up those memories or the fear or the trauma. In 2013, he first heard someone call that store on Ponce, the place where his friend died, Murder Kroger. In that moment, he realized that his experience and Cynthia's murder had become Atlanta legend. Yeah, I think originally they were calling it Scary Kroger. The first time I heard of it, I think it was around 2013, 2012. I was at the Little Five Points uh, Halloween Parade. I was taking pictures there, and I was with a friend of mine, and they had a, a float. Um, one of They were doing a Murder Kroger play. Uh, I think it was Dad's Garage. And I just kind of was dumbfounded, like, are you serious? And, of course, people were hamming it up and playing like they were dying, dead, being shot, whatnot. And at that point, I was kind of horrified. Like, up until then, I, I thought about it on a regular basis. However, I would never before then get on the Internet and do any searches on it. I would hear things here and there. It took Damon's cousin, Stephanie, longer to hear that nickname. She actively avoided news reports concerning the Ponce de Leon Kroger. When we met with her at a Buckhead hotel, she watched a 1991 news report. It was the first time she'd seen direct coverage of the case. Seeing her 21-year-old self turned away from the camera, getting into a police car to go make a statement. Were those her clothes on the ground yes. in the video? Yes, and that's kind of disturbing, yeah. It's so traumatic. Do you feel like at that age, you were young, 22, mm -hmm. did you realize at that time how traumatic what you had been through was? Uh, looking back, yeah, because I had nightmares for a little bit, yeah. Just seeing somebody getting their clothes cut off and she's shot, yeah. Damon said he had a lot of, like, things that stuck with him over the years emotionally from being up there. I have mostly... Uh, friends that were asking a whole bunch of questions like what happened and they still like well, what do you think happened like people we know later on in the years so you didn't watch much of the media coverage um but you have heard about people in atlanta sort of making the whole murder kroger joke jokes and things what yeah what has been your response to hearing not that? funny it's not funny i mean kroger shouldn't have that bat rap anyway because they don't ask for all that um violence down there, but I think just because it's so close to a police station, maybe I don't know what they could do to make it better, you know? We've talked about it before. It seems like people who make that joke haven't necessarily had to go do their shopping there or feel afraid before, maybe. Yeah, yeah and I think they just not been any kind of violence or seen anything scary. It was kind of scary. I was kind of jumpy, but I never went. I mean, I went back to Kroger like a couple of years later, but I did not go into that Kroger after that. I did not go like, no. Even when people said, let's go to Kroger, I was like, oh, my friend died there. And every time I go past that Kroger, although they're remodeling, I was like, I said, like, I was shot at in front of this Kroger. This is creepy. Damon hasn't avoided the Ponce de Leon Kroger. In recent years, he's gone out of his way to involve himself in conversations and events surrounding it. He wants Atlanta to remember the people, individual people with names and lives, who died there. Damon attended that Murder Kroger vigil we mentioned and spoke to attendees about the crime. 
He wasn't out to make people feel bad, but shining light on the deaths behind the legend was important. His point of view was covered by a local indie paper, Creative Loafing. In fact, that's how we found Damon in the first place. We asked him what he thought of the crowd that he encountered at the vigil. I don't know if there's a type. I, I don't even want to use the hipster word, but it seems like transplants who um, are not familiar with Atlanta uh, used to be. Uh, they don't remember all the projects. They don't remember the areas of town where it was kind of like we would get dangerous. Um, there was East Lake Meadows. There was Thomasville. There was uh, Carver Homes. There was um, there was uh, projects near Old Fourth Ward. So there was definitely pockets of Atlanta where okay, here's some big houses over here, and then one block later, yeah, you don't want to go over there. So these. Those are the people, and they hear about Atlanta being the place for music, the place for entertainment, and this and that. But other things, they just don't think it could ever happen to them because they believe it was something that we were involved in. It seemed to us that it was the people who feel safe, yeah. don't ever have to not feel safe, who thought it was such a funny joke to call it. Well, we used to be those type of people. That's one of the reasons we probably were targeted, and we didn't even notice that guy. And that's the irony of it. It's like, I don't know why you think that um, it can't happen to you because we thought the same thing. We're like, hey, we don't do that type of thing. We're not involved in drugs. We're not in gangs. We don't, we don't have to worry about that. And yeah, and then here it was. And for some of them, it may never happen or it may never happen on that scale. It might be uh, somebody that's in their apartment building or something like that. But either way, it was just one of those uh, random incidents where it's like, boom, you're face to face with somebody crazy. When Cynthia died, Damon was only 19. Frightened and in shock, brought down to homicide to give a statement, traumatized after witnessing the murder of a friend he was just getting to know. At 47, he sees things differently. He says he's no longer worried about that man finding him. He spent the last decades on alert, protecting the people around him, always aware. Now, Damon will readily discuss what happened in 1991, especially if it means attracting attention for Cynthia's case. He can't investigate her death, but he can grow the knowledge base on her case and introduce it to a new audience. That's why he agreed to meet with us. We interviewed Damon at the Atlanta Beltline Skate Park, a large green space with shaded benches, concrete skate ramps, and plenty of room for leisure. Atlanta has always sprawled, more so than other cities, and the Beltline is one attempt at cohesion. A project that will take decades to finish, it aims to give Atlantans from different neighborhoods centralized places to walk, run, and play. The official website promises that it's a place where, quote, Atlanta can come together. Some parts of the Beltline are already open to the public, like the skate park, playgrounds and parks, walking trails that run right up to where Damon and his friends were standing the night that Cynthia died. It's the biggest project the city has seen since the Olympics, and many businesses are eager to rebrand themselves as Beltline, including the so-called Murder Kroger, which closed its doors in 2016. Back then, though, the Beltline was a reality. The name change didn't take. But now, in 2019... That original building has been bulldozed and rebuilt as a swanky-looking version of its former self, and maybe the name will finally stick. It's unrecognizable as the scene of Cynthia Prielo's murder. 
Damon can still remember the area as it was, though, in 1991. He's long been a part of the Atlanta music scene, attending shows and dance parties on Ponce for three decades. When we met with Damon at the skate park, we discussed all kinds of things. One thing that was particularly important to cover, whether he and his friends felt safe as they moved through the Ponce de Leon area. We talked about Cynthia's life there, and we asked him how comfortable she felt. I feel like she thought Atlanta was a safe city, and I still I think it was for all intents and purposes. Um, even though Old Fourth Ward was a different neighborhood, over there by Kroger, it was just everybody going about their daily business. There were people all around us. Uh, it was not... Um, it wasn't empty, deserted. It wasn't nighttime. It was definitely the daytime. I don't exactly remember what time it was, but we weren't even close to dark because we still had to consider us walking back and me with two females. I had to consider that type of thing. So we had enough time to get home, and it was not even close to dark. In July of 1991, just three months after Cynthia's murder, the AJC published a multi-pager on women's safety. That's the article we mentioned earlier in the episode. It included expert advice on self-defense and various methods that might be employed. Personal alarms, weapons, even physical training. The story, written by Patricia Carr, begins with Cynthia. How she carried mace since moving to Atlanta in 1987. That the first time she used it was also, quote, the last time. Via quotes from a Cobb County detective and a self-defense instructor, both who were female, Carr highlights the essential problem women faced, and face, that every weapon can, quote, be taken away and used against you. The self-defense instructor is quoted as saying, quote, your best weapons are your mind, your body, and your voice. Both the detective and the instructor offer the advice that attitude is important, that self-confidence, lack of obvious vulnerability, can discourage an attacker. They also stress prevention, avoiding dangerous situations or leaving them and retreating to a safe place. Cynthia Priolo haunts this story. She's invoked in the opening and in the close, but each piece of advice conjures up the question, what could she have done to stay alive? Avoid dangerous situations, certainly, but no one can predict every possibility. When a moment can shift from safe to threatening. Was she supposed to avoid walking around her own neighborhood, an area she perceived as fairly safe? When you don't have a car, when the transit system is limited, how are you supposed to get around? The answer is simple. You walk. Cynthia's friend Stephanie remembers the time they spent together and how they most often met up on foot. The activities she describes seem as safe as any self-defense instructor could hope for. I was pretty much newer to Atlanta, but um, pretty much go get something to eat. We always seemed to be attracted to food or just hang out at her house and watch movies. And she taught me how to play spades, you know, just hanging out. Did you guys walk a lot in the area? Exercise? Yeah, because I lived in Little Five Points. I lived in... um, the opposite side, and she lived off of North Avenue. So we said, let's meet halfway, because it's not that far from each other. So she didn't have a car. Do you know if she walked to get groceries on a regular? Her um, cousin, she lived with her cousin. So her cousin would, you know, take her to get groceries, or she'll catch the Marta. 
So sometimes she'll walk, but mostly she caught the bus or her cousin that she was roommates with. So when you guys were, you know, walking around in the area, did y'all generally feel safe, would you say? I did. I mean, I hung out at Dugan's around the corner, and, you know, it's daytime. Who thinks something's going to happen in the, the day? The experts tell us that prevention and vigilance are the best tools women have. And Cynthia practiced both. No one is on high alert all the time, but Cynthia was used to taking care of herself. She was a young woman living on her own in a new city, her parents dead and most of her relatives 13 hours away. She grew up in Jersey City in Brooklyn and didn't assume she was safe or that if it came down to it, anyone would help her. Based on who and where and when she was, can you blame her? So she carried mace, but she hadn't ever used it, not as far as her friends knew, definitely not in Georgia. It was a precaution, something that made her feel better as she walked back and forth or took the bus alone or returned from late night hotel shifts. If she was expecting trouble, it was likely not on Ponce de Leon Avenue. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered, but we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. We've spoken to retired APD Lieutenant Danny Agan before. You might remember him from season three when we covered the infant abductions that occurred at Grady Hospital. Lieutenant Agan was stationed in the vicinity of the Ponce de Leon Kroger for many years and was able to provide us with more information on the area, as it was in 1991, and the homicides his unit generally handled. We asked him the precise location of the APD outpost and what its function was. It was on Somerset Terrace. Okay. It was right off of North Avenue. In fact, I think it was 581 Somerset Terrace, and that was the location of the Homicide Task Force. And that's where the homicide unit worked out of 24-hour-a-day operation. Detectives on three shifts, supervisors on three shifts. I mean, we were a full-service homicide squad. So in 91, when, in, in 1991, what would have been, like, what would be the kind of homicides that would just be coming across your desk? You know, back then, we were still running a lot of homicides in Atlanta. In fact, I started to look it up and see uh, what the actual numbers would have been for that year. But probably it would have been somewhere in the ballpark of 200 murders a year. Uh, back then, uh, domestics, of course, were uh, a, a part of our mix. Uh, those are always going to be part of the homicide squad's mix of cases they're investigating. Um, another part would have been drug murders. Um, people selling drugs, people buying drugs, people selling drugs and getting robbed, people trying to buy drugs and getting ripped off, and then <clears throat> somebody gets shot and somebody's dead, and then you have to work the case. Murders ran the gamut uh, from robberies, drug-related uh, homicides and domestic homicides, 
and then the occasional uh, rape, murder, uh, typical stuff that most big city police departments uh, wind up dealing with. Ponce de Leon was a mix of all kinds of stuff. Uh, the Claremont Hotel is just around the corner, and of course it was a hotbed of prostitution, and then you had a strip bar in the basement. You had prostitutes, male and female, working, working the street. Uh, of course, you had Plaza Drugs, uh, that shopping center up there where the Plaza Theater is. There was always some bad stuff going on around there, it seemed like. <clears throat> so Ponce de Leon itself was a sketchy area. The Kroger just happened to be there, and the Kroger itself wasn't really a problem. Um, I can't remember if they had an off-duty officer working there or not. It wouldn't surprise me if they did because they were going to get hit with shoplifters. Um, they said they had one in the store, but that they were not allowed to go out into the parking lot, well, apparently. Well, and see, and that would make sense. They're in the store. They're looking out for shoplifters. People are going to come in there and boost a bottle of wine or, you know, pick up a few packages of steaks and stuff them down in their pants, and then they're going to leave. And, that, and that's what they're worried about is having stuff stolen. So parking lot security might not have been at the top of the list. Uh, and of course, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and, you know, and maybe it should be. But so far as crimes happening at the Kroger involving strangers, innocent victims, uh, people getting robbed, people getting abducted in the parking lot, that didn't seem to be the case. In Danny's mind, though Ponce saw its fair share of crime, the area wasn't particularly dangerous. Certainly not a place where people would be afraid to walk or shop or live. So, Cynthia's death and the deaths that followed, perhaps they drew attention because the area was not known for its high murder rate. The relative proximity of a single business to four murders, that was striking. Damon and Stephanie both mentioned that they wouldn't have walked around the area late at night, but that they felt safe in the daytime. The shooting fell somewhere in between. The AJC reports that Cynthia was shot around 7 p.m., and the police report bears that out. Incident at 7.05. A call to emergency services at 7.10. APD on the scene by 7.15. The night was, according to police records, cool and clear. April 1st, 1991, was six days before daylight savings time commenced, and records show sundown was at about 6 p.m., and twilight was over by 6.30. So, if the police report includes the correct time, it was dark out. Damon, though, he remembers it being earlier, with plenty of light left. His cousin Stephanie, the third person at the scene, remembers the shooting occurring in the morning, maybe the afternoon. This is not meant to contradict their recollections. They were there after all, but it does highlight the ways that our brains reshape memories. At our first meeting, Damon told us he'd seen the same news footage that we showed Stephanie. He'd come across it on YouTube just a few years back. All three of the interviewees in this episode appear on that tape. Lieutenant Agen on night shift, serving as the spokesman for the unit. Damon and Stephanie, their faces turned away from the camera, getting in the back of a detective's car. They were on their way to APD to give their statements. Damon told us he was shocked when he first saw that footage because he remembered himself 
clearly remembered that he was wearing all white that night. But it was his cousin in white. He was actually wearing blue. According to a recent study of how emotional memories are formed, that actually makes perfect sense. In 2015, the New Yorker's Maria Konnikova interviewed Dr. Elizabeth Phelps, a scientist studying memory and how we recollect moments of heightened emotional impact. We can remember major events, traumatic or otherwise, with more clarity than other portions of our lives, but that recall comes at a price. Quote, while the memory of the event itself is enhanced, the vividness of the memory of the central event tends to come at the expense of the details. For Damon, that enhanced moment began when Cynthia was hit by the car. The papers consistently described it as a nudge, but that's not how he remembers things. At that moment, Damon was already on high alert, having been forced bodily against the wall, single file style, by the driver. The small details, what they were going to eat that night or the ride to the police station, those get blurry. Still, Damon and his cousin Stephanie can offer the clearest picture of the moments of the confrontation. In 1991, CCTV couldn't be pulled from a dozen surrounding businesses. It comes down to the police report and Cynthia's friends. Their positions, Stephanie walking in front, Cynthia in the middle, Damon in the rear, also affected their experience of the shooting. Who saw what? Who ducked first? If Cynthia ever managed to stand? If the shots all came at once? Damon and Stephanie also had different relationships with Cynthia, and what they knew about her and what they remember about themselves can vary too. When laid against each other, though, their stories form a pretty full picture of what Cynthia was like and why she didn't move against the wall, out of the way of the driver. Why, when he struck her with the car, she decided to fight back. In the spring of 1991, Damon Parker was taking printing classes. Just a year or so out of high school, he was focused on completing his job training. Cynthia and Stephanie spent most of their time at work, too. That's actually where they met, at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel downtown. Cynthia was friends with my cousin, uh, Stephanie Buffington. Uh, Stephanie is like about three years older than me, and I kind of used to always track along behind them because they were like the cool kids and I was still learning the city. They uh, both worked over at the uh, Ritz-Carlton Hotel near Lenox Mall. Did you hang out with Cynthia frequently? No, that was uh, one of my first times. I knew who she was, but I, we hadn't hung out a lot. Can you describe for people who have not seen a picture of Cynthia what she looked like? A uh, dark-complected lady with uh, curly hair. She was originally from Brooklyn, New York, but, I mean, she really was at work so much, so well, I guess her uh, after-work outfit didn't really matter as much to her. So it was like every time I saw her, it was mostly jeans and t-shirt. Very quiet. Uh, she was tough. Like, she was really from Brooklyn, so she kind of fit that build of the average Brooklyn girl. Um, she, didn't, uh, she didn't take a lot of gump from people who, who disrespected her, but she was also a very respective, uh, respectful, good person. So you wouldn't describe her as someone who was an aggressive person? No. Stephanie had an altogether different impression of Cynthia. She saw her as both less quiet and more expressive. April 91, I was 22, I believe. Me too. 
and I was a banquet waitress as part-time and I met worked at a hotel Ritz Carlton and I met a friend and we used to hang out now and then and she called me asked me hey do you want to go get something to eat and I said yes and that was Cynthia and that was Cynthia yeah. so you guys worked together at the hotel yes can you describe when you first met her what was her personality like she is really bubbly um, Pretty much everybody liked her. She started out in housekeeping, then she moved into a different department, which is called Honor Bar, where we set liquor in the guest room and they bought. But she's just very friendly, outgoing, will help anybody. I want to say maybe like five, five, two. She wasn't very tall, because I'm taller than her. Um, short, hippie, and African-American person, big smile. Back then, they had a thing called Jerry Curl. <laughs> she had a little Jerry Curl and stuff like that. She used to tell me like what she did in New York and different things and different friends. Like, say, oh, so-and-so like you. I said, well, why don't you go out with them? It's like, nah, I don't know if I really like them. I got other choices. <laughs> she sounds yeah. like she was really free. Yeah, really free. She was a free person. Anybody will tell you she was a free person. When you think back to that time, what did you guys do in town? Uh, you know what? When she called me to ask me if I wanted to kind of hang out, we were talking about her friend who just passed away. She was going back to New York because she was from New York. Um, and I was just saying, hey, you know, they say people you know die in threes. And she was like, well, you know, one of my other friends just passed away. I was like, well, hmm, who's going to be the third person? And I was just kind of joking around. And then she's like, oh, I don't know. Well, I'm going to go to New York and go to this funeral. I was so surprised. I was like, I didn't think I jinxed us, but I was like, dang. When she said she already knew two people, I was just commenting being funny. You know, we flip it. It's like, you know, we all say people die in threes. You know, when you know somebody, I wasn't thinking it was going to be my friend next to me to die on April Fool's. Next time. We continue our coverage of Cynthia Prelo's case, the altercation that led to her murder, her killer, and where her case stands today. The fear Damon and Stephanie felt with a murderer free in Atlanta, one who'd seen them and could identify them from any news report. I felt that they were on top of it. I felt the news also gave decent amount of coverage as best they could. I think the problem came, the fear that me and my cousin felt, because I only did one interview, and I w didn't want uh, my face shown. I didn't even want to uh, have where I lived at show. So at that time, I was, me and Stephanie were at a state of paranoia to where it was kind of like, we don't know who this guy is, we don't know where he is, or if he could find us. And so they had to do a whole lot without uh, that much help from us, uh, which probably kind of, it might have hindered the uh, investigation, but being the fact that the guy was kind of random, I'm not even sure he had a criminal background. He probably appeared to be your regular old dude. Uh, he came off more as a serial killer type than an actual criminal type. And I say that a lot of the news coverage and people's impersonation was, oh, it's a drug-infested neighborhood, there's gangbangers. Well, there might have been, but that's not the vibe I got from him. I got creepy dude who probably is hiding somewhere uh, in any given time trying to look for somebody to mess with. To hear the rest of Damon's story and Cynthia's, be sure to listen to part two of our Cynthia Prelo series. 
We hope you'll join us then. We would like to thank all the listeners who have taken the time to support our sponsors, to leave us reviews, or to support our show directly on Patreon. We could not do it without you. Special thanks go out to Angie Dodd. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Our research assistants are Haley Gray, Kim Fritz, Brooke Floyd, and Lexi Newhouse. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Music is by RJR. Find our merch in the Exactly Right Podswag store. A portion of our proceeds are donated to support the work of the DNA Doe Project. Follow us at Fall Line Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, at The Fall Line Podcast on Facebook, and email us at falllinepodcast at gmail.com. Check out our website for news, image galleries, and episode sources. 